teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Melissa, I am very excited to talk with our guest today. We have been wanting to talk with him for a bit, and we reached out to him at the end of 2020, so we are super pumped to talk to him in 2021, kick off the new year, right? Um, I know that you came across uh, the Fordham study. Um, you, know, you, you put it on my, my Facebook, I think, so. I think so. Well, <laughs> I don't, re- I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I thought you came across it, but okay. <laughs> I can't, you know what? I can't remember 2020. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know you're excited to, to talk with Adam today. And um, Adam, we want yeah. to give credit to, to you so much for all the work that you've done here on this research. And, and we can't wait to hear you talk all about it. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, Adam, before we jump into your uh, study that I really want to talk about, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, You said we have 30 to 60 minutes, so. um, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, keep, go ahead. (laughs) Whole life story. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm Associate Director of Research at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, which is a nonprofit education think tank in Washington, D.C., um, I have been at the Fordham Institute for a few years now, and prior to that was working as a, an analyst at Hanover Research in um, Arlington, Virginia, where I was kind of liaising with school districts and helping them design research projects, also um, uh, executing research projects, doing data analysis stuff. So I, I spent a, a little while kind of working with uh, with mostly school districts, but also some state departments of education, other education stakeholders to kind of set up custom studies when I was in that role as an analyst. And, uh, and then I transitioned to to Fordham and have been on the Fordham team for a few years. At Fordham, uh, we put out research on a monthly or every other month or so basis. We have a big research report that comes out and um, we're easy to find at FordhamInstitute.org. We have a podcast, our own podcast, uh, which I occasionally uh, join. And, um, you moonlight, and yeah, we, right? What's that? You moonlight here and there on the podcast? Yeah, once in a while. <laughs> you wanna, do you want to share it. the name of it? It, yeah, it's called the Education Gadfly Show. Um, and, you know, again, I think everything can easily be found at FordhamInstitute.org. If you just Google the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, you can find all of our resources, blogs and reports and all kinds of stuff. But we do stuff on all kinds of different topics. And we've been interested in in elementary literacy education for a long time. This is a first project that I've done on that specific topic. But um, we're uh, yeah, we do we do a lot of different stuff there. And uh, it's kind of fun being on the research team where we get to be kind of generalists and get into a lot of different types of research at policy level and practice level and and different kinds of stuff. Excellent. (laughs) So I am so interested in your study. So the study that we keep talking about (laughs) um, is social studies instruction and reading comprehension, evidence from the early childhood longitudinal study. Um, I'm really interested for two reasons. One, I focus more on secondary literacy. And so you know, disciplinary literacy in the content areas has always been a big topic for me, even though it's something that doesn't always happen <laughs> still. <laughs> um, but it's still, it's a topic of conversation. And then also because of, you know, part of the reason we adopted Wit and Wisdom was this whole idea of building knowledge and um, the need for building knowledge. And um, I really saw that come out in the study a bit too. So um, just wondering, I guess we can just start with like talking about the study a bit. Like, where did it come from? How'd you get there? Sure. How did it come to be? Yeah. I mean, I think that there were kind of two reasons we did this study. I mean, one is that we've been interested in these topics for a long time about elementary literacy instruction and, and, you know, you know, honestly, I think a lot of us are just concerned about the literacy outcomes we have in the country. If you look at the NAEP, for example, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which people call the nation's report card, um, it's just like 20% of economically disadvantaged students who are even meeting the proficiency level on on that national assessment. And uh, about a third of, of students overall are meeting the proficiency level. That's not the advanced level. That's just the proficiency level. And that's in fourth and in eighth grade. 
And some people say the NAEP standard is kind of high. That's fine. But I mean, there, if you look at adult assessments of literacy, you'll find that there's a, a substantial percentage of the adult uh, public that is functionally illiterate. And we just have a lot of, uh, I think, concerns about how, you know, both that we're getting bad outcomes and some concerns about the things that we've seen in the pedagogy of, of literacy. And uh, we've had reading wars around for decades and people have been arguing about phonics for some reason and that I don't really understand. Maybe you <laughs> all can explain that one to me. We can't really. <laughs> we don't know why we don't know why everybody's arguing about that. <laughs> Seems pretty simple to me. I, I studied Chinese for a while and I lived in China for a few years. And Chinese is the one language, I mean any language that uses Chinese characters, Japanese does a bit of it too. But um yeah, it's like the it's the one that doesn't have an alphabet. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, if you have an alphabet, you should use it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, phonics, this guy, I have no idea why that's been controversial, but apparently that's been a big uh, controversy for decades. But there's also been a, a, a kind of similar, well, I mean, not similar controversy, sim but a, another controversy, I guess, about, um, you know, what leads to reading comprehension. And um, a lot of people have kind of argued that, we should be, you know, just focused on developing these reading comprehension skills kind of in a, in a vacuum. And um, other people have said that that's wrongheaded and that reading comprehension skills don't so much exist in a vacuum. Maybe a few of them do, but that's kind of minor compared to the importance of just knowing more about the world and having a bigger vocabulary and being, you know, fluent in speaking, not just about literacy, not just about reading, but being, you know, able to talk about different subjects is, is also super important. So there's this other perspective and that, and, and we just wanted to, uh, so frankly, the second reason why we, we kind of came up with this idea was that we discovered that there was this data source, this federal survey, the ECLSK data source that had tracked students from kindergarten all the way through fifth grade. I think they might still be tracking them, although I'm not sure how that's going in the pandemic. But <laughs> they, the idea is to track these students long term and to they had has a collection of surveys, parent surveys, teacher surveys, administrator surveys, assessments of the students. It has just a, a ton of data all every year along their elementary school um, you know academic path and we can we, we know a lot about their about their academic experiences we can also tr you know see how that uh, lines up with their outcomes and we thought this is a good opportunity to take a look at how classroom instructional time is used across different subjects and see if there is a relationship between how classroom instructional time is used and the progress that students make in literacy. So the second part of it was just we kind of found this new data source. We didn't think that anybody had done anything that was quite like that before. So we can talk more about the kind of pros and cons of that approach. Um, but but that was really what what the what prompted us to do this study. We did this analysis and, and produced this report that that came out a few months ago. And um, yeah, it's, I'm glad you guys read it and we're posting about it on Facebook and everything. That's uh, that's really exciting that people were were reading our report. We appreciate it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we read it. And well, I thought Melissa shared it with me, but apparently I came across it and shared it with her. It must have struck me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just that first bit. Um, this I assume it's like this, the first bit is like the summary piece of it all is that the content knowledge is so important and it overrides those skills and strategies. Um, and the time in the, the content class was, was just really impactful for students and particularly certain subgroups of students. Um, I had one question before we kind of dove a little bit deeper into that. Um, was the quality of instruction measured or was it just the time? And if so, how? So, uh, like I said, we'll get into some of the pros and cons of this data source. <laughs> and thank you for bringing up a con first. So, <laughs> I'm just joking. But uh, the, the data is 
has some pros in that it is a nationally representative sample. We're covering thousands upon thousands of students in lots of different environments. So it has a kind of researchers call this external validity that it's like probably applicable more broadly than a narrow study that just looks at one group or one school or one classroom or something. Um, but it, it, what it, what it has in breadth, it, it sometimes lacks in depth in the sense that we don't actually have information about how the instructional time is used beyond what subject it's being used on. And that comes from a teacher survey, which, um, you know, is a zero stakes survey that we have no reason to believe the teachers would have any reason to, uh, you know, not answer totally honestly, but it, it is subject to whatever, you know, whatever, measurement error might come from having teachers report on how much time they spend on different subjects. But we don't know beyond how much time is spent on these different subjects, whether, for example, the literacy instruction was content rich or what curricula they used Mm -hmm. or um, other practices that they that they employed in the classroom. We just don't have that kind of granular information. It's the, the data that we analyze is about how each uh, how much time students are spending on each subject in, in class. Got it. That's really helpful to, you know, to frame from the outset, but it is, it's still compelling nonetheless, right? Like I like that idea of the breadth over depth and really being able to understand that that time on task, you, you know, regardless of, of how the teacher used that time, um, what they did during that time. We know that they were focusing on that particular subject area. So then maybe that could be your next study. <laughs> yeah, well, the truth is that there's a lot of studies that have kind of, you know, these laboratory experiments where they, you know, look at the effect of, for example, background knowledge on your ability to read a passage. We actually have a lot of studies in that vein. And I think the micro has been done well. It's not, uh, you know, breadth over depth isn't necessarily better at all. It's you kind of need both. Um, but I think there's been a lot of studies that have looked and found like, what is the, if we are in a laboratory, what is the effect of, of, uh, you know, having some background knowledge on the perceived literacy, the you know literacy measures that we have, you know, there's a famous, the famous baseball study where they look at these students who are, um, they divide them into groups of, you know, the ones who knew more about baseball and the ones who knew less and when they looked at traditional measures of literacy, those measures of literacy weren't as predictive of them being able to interpret a passage about baseball as just knowing about baseball was. And that's a very famous study. Um, it has been replicated in, you know, with, in Germany. There was, you know, they did it with soccer and, you know, they've done other similar studies. There's been a lot of those. But there hasn't been a lot that has looked at the classroom level. What kind of you know, how could we change classroom dynamics in a way that might uh, alter literacy outcomes? That kind of stuff is is less prevalent. And so I, we thought that was a big contribution of this report. That's great. And I, I just want to say too for our listeners, the we we talk about the baseball study a lot. You know, we had on Natalie Wexler. She. T- t- talked about the baseball study. Um, I'll talk about cricket next time then. Talk, yeah, (laughs) cricket study. Um, But, you know, that I like, so the baseball study, just to put a pin in it, is an example of the depth. And your study is focusing on the breadth. So lots and lots of uh, students and teachers were involved in this study. Um, That's right. Can can you tell us a little bit about it, a little bit more uh, specifics around... um, what did you find? Yeah. What, yeah, what did you find out? <laughs> sure. So what we found was, um, I think, probably not too surprising when you look descriptively at how classroom time is being used uh, in elementary classrooms. Remember, this is just K through five. That ELA is predominant. English language arts time is about two hours on average uh, in, 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 for elementary school classrooms per day. Uh, and and this um, that that makes about forty percent of the instructional time that teachers reported was spent on English language arts. Then math was second over an hour, eighty some minutes on on math, and then about half an hour for each social studies and science, and then a little bit of time for stuff like PE and arts and and music and foreign language. 
those were those were the additional subjects that we looked at much less time spent on those which that kind of conforms to what people think although i don't know if the man on the street would necessarily say 40% of the time would be spent on english language arts they might think it's more like you know a quarter a quarter a quarter for those core yeah. those core yeah. four subjects um so descriptively, I think that's that is probably not super surprising for people who know about this a little bit, but um, maybe some parents and 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 some uh, you know the your your average person who doesn't know a lot about how classroom instructional time is used might be surprised that forty percent of the time is being used on ELA. And by the way, only a third of students are. Uh, considered literate right. according to the NAEP in fourth and eighth grade. So something it's funny is because, off there, right? I mean, I, I know our schedules is even here in Baltimore City, and it probably is 40% here. But hearing that 40% for some reason just makes it, it's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, especially if you're not, so if you're not using a knowledge building curricula that is incorporating, you know, social studies, science, all, health, all of those, quote, content right. areas that are, compelling to building knowledge. Um, what I was doing, actually, as you were talking, I was thinking parents um, probably are perceiving this more now that we're in a virtual environment and school has like fallen into their houses. Um, so maybe they have a better understanding now, but... Um, That's probably right. Yeah, I was looking up an example of, and I, I don't have to read it because it would distract us, but like just an example of one of the things that my daughter, who does not have high quality instructional materials, um, like question, she's asked to like read lots of different um, passages and then respond to questions. I mean, that's basically ELA every day. And it, you know, it's very skill-based. It's very much like identify cause and effect, identify the main idea. Um, but, you know, the passages don't build on one another. There's no through line. Um, there's not a connector thread from one day to the next. It's very much like on Monday, we're going to read about um, honeybees. And then on Tuesday, we're going to read about um, habitats for spiders. And I mean, on Wednesday, we're reading about something that has to do with social studies. And then, uh, so, I mean, it's just very broken. Um, and, and just the idea of like that building knowledge over time on topics is lacking, um, which I feel like is what happens in social studies <laughs> classes and science classes. You're studying a topic for a period of time to, to gain knowledge on it, right? Yeah, it, it's a little, I mean, you, you raise a couple important points. One, again, the data limitation that we don't know how the ELA time or the social studies time is really being mm -hmm. used. Is social studies time mean that you're reading biographies of, you know, obviously they'd be simple biographies because these are elementary school students, but are, are you reading biographies? text? Are you reading, uh, uh, you know, a text that is is relevant or is it like coloring time about, you know, you're coloring a right. <laughs> picture of a historical scene because we've heard some of that too. Absolutely. So, it's unclear. And like you said, we don't know what the, the English language arts time is being used in a really productive way or if it's being used in a, in a bad way. All we, all we know is about that. But it also raises a more theoretical question for elementary uh, educators, which is just like, what is ELA time? Anytime I'm reading, is that ELA time or... You know, and so that could affect the way the, you know, teachers reported things for our, our survey. That's a fair point. But it's also just a question of, uh, you know, we're kind of thinking that ELA or that you know, literacy skills are these kind of discrete free floating things. And so if you're doing literacy skills, then that's ELA time. But if you're reading a biography, in a, you know, that's about social studies, that's not really ELA time. And that's not clear that that's accurate. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're working on, if you're reading text and you're writing some short reply, you know, answers or, or something, about science or about social studies, it's it's not clear that that is really a, um, a valid distinction. And I think it goes to the heart of some of the problems that we have where, I mean, in my opinion, I, I think that making that distinction might be kind of harmful because you're saying that 
we're not really teaching literacy if we're learning about history and we're learning about science and we're learning about art and stuff. But I think that maybe is once you're past the decoding stage, once students mm-hmm. are, you know, apart from that, and I shouldn't say past it chronologically because it can be happening even before students can decode. But, uh, you know, beyond decoding, it um, that is, I think, what literacy is, is being knowing stuff, having vocabulary, uh, you know, you obviously have to be able to sound the words out and, you know, read along and be used to using written text or that's, you know, not going to not going to be fluent for you. But it's there's this cliche that I'm sure all your listeners have heard about, you know, first you learn to read and then you read to learn or whatever. And that's just I think that's part of the problem is the idea yeah. that. ELA time, it, we're doing some separate thing <laughs> from just like learning about the world around us that is going to give us vocabulary and give us the ability to talk and think and read and write about more topics, which is what literacy really is. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why at the secondary level, like we still get so much pushback from content areas, not everybody, but generally there's like a, no, we don't want to do literacy. And I'm like, but it's not like, because I think it's, they're trying to do this secret thing that you do in ELA class <laughs> when oh, yeah. it's really like, are you just reading about your topic? <laughs> are you, are they writing about your topic? Are they talking mm-hmm. about it? Whatever it is. Um, but it's funny that, that, yeah, there's definitely a feeling that there's like the secret ELA, <laughs> but I think it probably comes from those skills that Laura, you brought up that have like, that's, that's seen as ELA. Yeah. But I mean, when you, and- when you think about it though, so my daughter's name is Presley Adam. Um, she is in third grade and technically she should be in the quote, if you were to categorize, which we know we're not going to, but for the sake of this conversation, like she's not any more learning to read. She's quote reading to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Cause we typically say third through fifth grade is where you kind of turn mm-hmm. that corner and go into reading to learn. And she's not, and she's in, um, you know, a school that is, uh, using a, curricular materials that are not considered high quality. And um, honestly, the social studies that I've seen is like, let's learn about South Africa. And then you're going to become an expert in South Africa in 12 minutes with your Mm. teammates and watch a pebble go and then present to the rest of your class. And I mean, we all know it should take longer um, than 12 minutes to become an expert on South Africa. (laughs) And and there's a lot more than that. Um, You know, I say that very tongue in cheek to say that the work that you're doing is very important because like, you're right. (laughs) We, you know, that, that learning to read and reading to learn, it should be a both and approach. Like we don't, you know, we should be reading to kids in kindergarten and teaching them about um, all of the important topics and while still also teaching them how to decode words. Yeah. I mean, the term reading means different things in all these different contexts. And I mean, if you go to, you know, if we step out of elementary literacy and you, you go to talk to college professors, a lot of them, especially the more kind of, no, actually a lot of them will say that, you know, their, their goal for that undergraduate is to get them to learn how to read and write. And of course, when they come to college, they can read and write by (laughs) elementary (laughs) literacy standards. They can read and write. But it means something different because when you're in a more educated context, it means reading books. It means reading scholarly articles sometimes. It means reading things that, you know, it's a different kind of what it means to read and write is just a different thing. To write doesn't just mean that you can write your name or that you can write, you know, a a sentence with the word spelled right. It means that you can write an argument and you can have use evidence well and it has has a different meaning. But the the truth is that the, the term to read, it means these different things, but it actually kind of tracks along once you're beyond decoding which I think we conflate with reading, you know, these other literacy skills a lot of the time and, and makes it seem like they're all a distinct skill. But beyond that really is kind of just, it's about exposure to more complex texts mm-hmm. to, and, and building knowledge and not just exposure to random complex texts, like you're <laughs> clicking on random Wikipedia articles and becoming <laughs> an expert on Nelson Mandela in two minutes and then an, an expert on, you know, something else, but that you're really building that knowledge and, and, accumulating something that you then can 
you know, exercise those higher order critical thinking and inquiry skills on. Yeah. So what did you all find specifically about the social studies classes? Oh yeah. We're supposed to talk about the, the report, <laughs> right? So, so we found this, sorry. We, we, so we, found this, we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We found we descriptively <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's 40% ELA time. Um, social studies, science, getting less than half an hour or around a half an hour uh, per day in elementary classrooms. But then we go on to to try to assess the independent effect, excuse me, of those um, of those subjects on the literacy improvement. We actually have measures of literacy in kindergarten. And we have two measures of literacy in kindergarten, as well as a bunch of other controls for abilities and, you know, how much you know about science and non-cognitive abilities, and all this stuff, so that we can kind of compare apples to apples when we're looking at what those students look like in kindergarten. And then we can look at their literacy outcomes in fifth grade. And then we can see who has a, a liter- who has a reading score in fifth grade that's higher than we would guess based on looking at how they were in kindergarten. They must have made more progress between kindergarten and fifth grade. And then is that correlated with how instructional time was used in their classrooms? And so, you know, we got many thousands of students that we're able to, to, to look at in order to run the statistical analysis. And what we found was that the students who spent more time, more, more of their classroom instructional time was spent on social studies made more progress in those early grades from, from first to fifth grade. So the baseline's kindergarten, then we look at how instructional time is used from first to fifth grade, then we have a spring reading assessment. And we find that those students are doing measurably, the students are getting more, um, more social studies time, we're doing measurably better in reading at the end of fifth grade. And we did not find that that was the case for ELA or for science or for the other uh, subjects or for math. Uh, it was just something that we found for, uh, for, for social studies. And um, it could be that, you know, that could be because social studies is particularly content rich and that students are really accumulating, you know, the students who are exposed to more social studies are accumulating more knowledge of the world and, and, and then they're do, doing a little better as readers. Um, we, we don't know exactly the mechanism, but that, that's our, that's our take on it. It's our hypothesis is that, um, that those, you know, spending more time with social studies could be could be um, building more knowledge, and uh, and, and there were specific groups literacy. of students that it was more beneficial for. I'm not so remembering the, exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> I think the thing we found uh, researchers call these heterogeneous effects, where you're trying to see if different groups of students responded differently to the treatment. The treatment in this case is uh, additional time in in one of these subjects, or or additional time in social studies is what we'll be talking about, but. Um, the only one that was really stood out was that the effect was clearly driven by students who were in the bottom three income quartiles. It was not the most affluent students who benefited from social studies. They weren't harmed by it. They had virtually zero effect from social studies, but the effects were stronger on, uh, than the average for students in all three of the lower, um, income quartiles, I say the lower income quartiles, that includes middle-class students in the, you know, second highest income quartile means there's four of them. So, um, so anyway, uh, the only the top 25% uh, of income family students uh, didn't really have an effect from social studies. And, uh, and, and those, those students in the lower income quartiles were driving the effect. There were some slight differences um, when you looked at students, for example, from students, uh, families that did not speak English in the home primarily. Um, they had an estimated effect that was about double of what the students who came from English um, speaking homes had. Um, we don't have the statistical power to really differentiate between those, to, say, to be honest. So I would take that with a grain of salt. We don't know for sure that that's definitely a, a difference, but um, it appears that it, it suggestive that it, it could be a, a difference there. Um, girls had a slightly larger effect than boys. Again, those differences themselves aren't statistically significant, so we're not really sure. But um, but the 
the the difference in the income quartile seemed pretty clear that it was the it was the it was the really driven by the students who were in the lower end and middle of the income distribution, um, and that would jibe with some ideas about you know students who are from the most affluent quartile are probably ones who are getting access to a lot of the knowledge building resources outside yeah. of school, and yeah. so they may be getting a lot of the stuff that. You know, it's not school isn't as important a lever of building knowledge for them as it may be for students who are middle class and poorer who really need school because their parents are busy and working and you know maybe don't spend as much time with you know reading books and we know there's a correlation you know economics and uh, between the financial situation of the family and how much time they how many books they have in the house and how much you know how much time they spend going to museums and stuff like that yeah. so it's it's possible that that's the reason why this effect was stronger for students in the bottom part of the income distribution and and there wasn't an effect for those those uh, students who were from the more affluent families. That's so interesting. Um, I'm I'm curious, and I feel like I'm going to ask you really detailed questions, so <laughs> so you can tell me to stop. Um, when students show like that they had the most time in social studies, like that had the most impact. What were the, what were the other, how dramatically different were times in other subject areas? Sorry, the effect of the time or the amount of the time? Both, I think. So, so if we just look at the amount, excuse me, if we just look at the amount of time that students spend um, by, for example, by income quartile, we don't see huge differences. Science and social studies are basically the same. Students who come from more affluent families tend to have classroom instructional time that is a little more skewed towards the non-core, non-four core subjects of you know science, social studies, math, and ELA. Uh, so they get a little more of that time and they get a little less math and ELA time on average. Students who are from poorer backgrounds tend to get a little more math and ELA. Um, in terms of the effects for other subjects, there's not really effects um, really for any groups um, of, of the other subjects, at least not consistently. Um, okay. Yeah. It's I'm just really curious. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Thank you. I just, I feel like I'm always so curious because, you know, there are so many, I, I, I just wonder like what about social studies makes it special is what you're kind of piquing my interest about. And that's mm-hmm. not to say like we should not teach science or, right? you know what I mean? I'm just wondering if it, um, <laughs> Absolutely not. something to do with like the engagement in the text and the mm-hmm. topics. Um, like if there are certain type, like I'm just thinking of a wit and wisdom module and, um, grade seven where um, we read animal farm and then we compared um, the power between uh, Napoleon and animal farm and great leaders of great pharaohs, um, you know, from many, many, many years ago. And we looked at the great Sphinx and um, the temples at Abu Simbel and things like that, where like, we're like, quote, taking them to these, places to help build their knowledge. Um, also reading, you know, informational texts and things like that along the way. Um, I'm just wondering like if science kind of doesn't look like that and like, you know, just the differences in the way that different content areas look in the classroom, social studies kind of lends itself to a lot of integration and, you know, I just multiple, um, sources is I think what I'm, I'm getting at. Well, we speculated that it may be the reason why we found an effect of social studies and not science. And by no means do I take away from this report that science isn't important. I think (laughs) science is super important. Yeah. And um, we should be learning it as early as possible. Um, So I I don't take that away from this. There's no negative effect of science. There was no negative effect of ELA. So I, I see this more as highlighting the importance of social studies and, mm-hmm. and the kinds of things that social studies can do more than I see it as, you know, saying that other subjects aren't important or something. Um, so one reason or one, yeah, one idea we came up with, I think it was my colleague, Robert Pondicio who came up with this idea for why. Oh, wait, will you introduce us to him? 
Sure. Okay. Thank you. Sure. I'm I'm sure he'd love to be on your podcast. He's on he's on our hot list too. It was it was Adam Tyner and then Robert Pondicio and that word. Thank you. Make sure to bring that up to him. (laughs) Remind him of that word. So what he he, I'll give him his props. It it was his idea here, I think. And honestly, he's been studying this stuff way longer than me. I'm sure he'd be a lot more interesting guest than I am anyway. Oh, you're amazing. he's He's been studying this stuff for many more years than, than I have. And, uh, you know, helped generate a lot of this. He used to work at, at core knowledge, I think. And, um, he's, uh, yeah, he's definitely, um, an expert on this stuff way more than I am, but he had this idea that the, the effect of social studies may be because, you know, we talk sometimes about tier one, tier two, tier three words, and when you're building vocabulary, those tier one words are those most simple vocabulary, the ones you use every day, walk, run, boy, girl, stuff that, um, you know, you, you learn first and, um, and are basic words that you basically can't get away from. And then tier three words are those like hyper specialized words that you really only use in a specific context, you know, a word like chlorophyll or something, unless you're using some kind of really funky metaphor or something, you're probably only (laughs) going to use the word chlorophyll if you're talking about plants and photosynthesis or something, you know, why leaves are green or something. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a pretty specialized context. Uh, The tier two words are these more sophisticated vocabulary that we still use in general, you know, discussions. And so if you want to read literature or you want to read the New Yorker or, or whatever, you're going to have to have a lot of this tier two vocabulary, which is words like annual stuff that you could probably get around saying, but that literate people, you know, highly literate people use all the time and expect you to know. And the idea was that social studies may be more rich in those tier two vocabulary and the texts that you would read for social studies may be more rich in that type of vocabulary. Um, and, and that the vocabulary you would pick up in science might be more of that tier three vocabulary that is important as you're building scientific knowledge, but is much less likely to show up on a literacy assessment and probably is less likely to contribute to what we would you know, just generally call literacy because it is more specialized. That kind of blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> you know, I was relating it back to that, um, the, like the, the very start of our conversation where we talked about breadth and depth. Like to me, those tier three words are like your depth words and tiers one and mm. two are your breath words. So, and I, I have trouble saying that word. So I feel like I'm not going to articulate it correctly <laughs> on the podcast. Breath. <laughs> Um, so there's a lot of consonants right in a row. Very much, yeah. Phonics does not (laughs) needs to help me a bit here. Um, but yeah, those tiers one and two words are like your your breadth words. You're you're using them a lot in a lot of different contexts and settings. They're very transferable. Um, you need them more often than you need chlorophyll. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't remember the last time I I used that word. To be perfectly honest. I do. I talk about my plants all the time. <laughs> it's a tier one word for you, Melissa. I still, don't, I still don't use it. And I do talk about my plants all the time. <laughs> That's a good point. So we, uh, just to kind of recap, um, you know, we've been talking about some of the takeaways and you know, time for social studies, very important. We're, what's, what can social studies do for us? We find out in this report. Um, knowledge building in across all subjects. So across ELA uh, and then across obviously our content classes. Um, We have another takeaway for the policy and practice that we we found and that would be reading assessments aligned to content. Um, Melissa and I are big fans of this one. Do you mind chatting about it a little bit? Sure. So this is a much more kind of uh, not really a research-based suggestion, more of a kind of Uh, speculative idea that we have that is based on some experiments that are going on right now and that we've read about. Um, But basically the, I actually used to think that this was kind of confusing because I I don't know how much your listeners are familiar with uh, the work of E.D. Hirsch, but he was one of the first people to 
kind of criticize this, I, you know, this stuff about reading comprehension skills and say that it was really more about knowledge. And he has a book called The Knowledge Deficit that I think Natalie uh, Wexler kind of ripped off, called it The Knowledge Gap. She has a great <laughs> book. I, I, I like her book a lot, but it's really a very similar concept. <laughs> Hirsch's book, uh, it's very much updated and I, I like her book a lot too, but um, uh, but he was doing this a long time ago and making the uh, very similar points. And I always, when I first was reading him or the first couple of books of his that I read, I was thinking like, why isn't the answer that we shouldn't have literacy tests? Because if literacy skills aren't a real thing, then why should we have any literacy tests at all? And I never got why he didn't recommend getting rid of literacy tests completely because it wasn't, a, if it's not a discrete skill, why, why test it? And I later realized he actually wrote a, an article about this with Robert Pondicio. And they, they wrote this thing about the relationship between knowledge and reading and, and then assessment. And basically what they say is that the reading test is largely a knowledge test. The question is, what knowledge is it testing? And so they... Out of this idea has sprung another idea for assessment that the real way to improve literacy assessment is to align the literacy assessments with some content so that teachers have a reason to teach the content. And so if they know that the grade three literacy test is going to be over, you know, ancient civilizations and the human body and grade four is going to be over, you know, the westward expansion and whatever. And it's not that the, it's a really going to, it's less, it's now a social studies and science test. It's still just a literacy test, but you know, the passages are going to be about those things. Then it, it gives a real reason for teachers to actually start building that knowledge. They know that, okay, it's going to be about these topics. So let's build some knowledge about those topics. Let's do our practice reading about those, do it in a structured way rather than just thinking, well, it should just be all over the place. The way that it is Mm -hmm. now, because we are testing knowledge, but we're calling it literacy. And then the assessments we have are these literacy assessments it is a little bit rational that a lot of teachers just want to do what is essentially like reading test prep all the time, which is, I think, yeah, I'm looking at it. Yeah. The scientifically <laughs> based, supposedly evidence based reading, uh, you know, pedagogical um, techniques are the, the reading, um, you know, these reading skills techniques is a lot like test prep. And I think that kind of makes sense if you have a short-term time frame and you have no idea what's going to be on the assessment because you you know what kinds of topics will be on the assessment because if I don't if I, the assessment might have topics that could be anything how could I possibly think in the next few months I'm going to get my students to know uh, you know, know so much about these topics that they're going to do better on the uh, the literacy assessment. In the long run, of course, they'd be better off. But in the short mm-hmm. run, in the next few months, let's just drill some test prep and hope that their scores go up and, and that'll be good. So the idea is to reform the assessments so that you know what the topics are going to be about. And then you have an incentive to actually teach about those topics and you can structure the instruction. Louisiana right now is supposedly, wow. um, <laughs> I've read that they are piloting this in a few schools. It's not statewide. It's just a pilot program to try this out. Um, it, to be honest, we don't know. There may be some unintended consequences from this that we have not thought through yet, but it's definitely something that I think we should be thinking about because if the literacy test is really mostly a knowledge test, then we shouldn't be neglecting the the other end of the spectrum that we've been hearing in the last couple of years is let's control for student background knowledge on the literacy assessment because (laughs) students have different types of background knowledge And it's unfair to test them on a type of background knowledge that they may not have as much exposure to or whatever. So let's try to control for background knowledge on the literacy assessment. This is the approach that some people at the uh, 
uh, NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. They're trying to reform the literacy assessment. Um, they're doing that from an equity perspective. They think that this is going to make it more equitable. But a lot of people think this is just incoherent to think that you can somehow control for knowledge on a literacy assessment if a large part of what makes you literate is how much background knowledge and vocabulary you have. <laughs> That's what I was saying. Like, how do you even do that? <laughs> like, how would you control it? For makes it makes no sense to me. I talked to E.D. Hirsch about this too, and he doesn't get it either. Well, that makes you very cool that you uh, just chatted with him about it. <laughs> we were on a panel. To, the Fordham Institute had an event and you guys can can check it out if you want. We had a whole panel about this report. If you you know, if any of your listeners are you know haven't gotten an, their fill of this report, yeah, we'll, we'll, this we'll podcast, link it. You, you can read the report at FordhamInstitute.org, and you can also uh, look at the 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 panel that we had, where it was me and and um, and Edie Hirsch and uh, Chester Finn uh, at the Fordham Institute, and we had a social uh, studies expert on the panel as well. And so, um, yeah, so that was the context for that. We don't just like hang out on the weekends. Or anything. <laughs> we figured you were just going to text him after this to say, Hey, <laughs> um, well, we'll link the panel. Um, I didn't know. So that's really fun. I can go and build my, continue to build my knowledge after this. Um, and I'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're big fans of that, at least giving it a try because we know that what, is assessed is focused on in schools and um, you know this kind of front end approach of placing knowledge building materials in the hands of um, teachers and leaders to to give to students and to engage uh, students with sometimes it doesn't always um, execute the way that it's intended right because there's not mm-hmm. there's a lack of understanding about the why or um, the how or the what um, and you know there's that's probably a whole nother a uh, couple podcasts about that but um, if we if we try this as as well like take that both and approach and revamp our assessments to see could it work and that, you know, build the buy-in that way, um, hopefully we'll be able to at some point say that, you know, not two-thirds of students are, are, we're not leaving them behind. We're taking all of them with us um, and not just through proficiency to, to advance so that they have all, all that they need to succeed in life. Um, so, I mean, yeah. If we were doing it from scratch, I would say maybe, you know, maybe we should just have a science and social studies test each. I mean, people talk about over testing and everything. And I, I'm not sympathetic to this because I think it's mostly self-imposed by districts. And <laughs> my states. gosh, yes. <laughs> it, it's the over testing is not coming from having, you know, a 45 minute test on each subject at the end of the year, you got 180 school days and you can't do three or four hours of testing is it, to me, that's not really the issue. The issue is that you have 10,000 formative and interim assessments. Yeah. <laughs> that are imposed apart from that. And then you end up spending all your time on testing. It's kind of a, a red herring, I think, that the end of year, <laughs> end of grade tests are, are a problem. And if we were doing it from scratch, I would say just we should have a science and social studies assessment at the end of, you know, of each grade as well. And that way we could you know, really have even a stronger incentive for the schools to get that part of it right. Because I think that the, you know, the, no child left behind era assessments have led to additional marginalization of social studies. It was already a problem. I think it's gotten worse because I think there's evidence that um, I've looked back at this because a lot of people think that it's because of no child left behind and the, and the way we do testing that social studies and science are getting so such a small amount of time. And um, I've looked at surveys of, of like how classroom instructional time was used as far back as the 1970s. And it's uh, my takeaway from all of that is that it has contributed to that, but it was already like that. I mean, ELA time was already, you know, if it was 35% before now it's 40%, but, um, it has had, has had that effect. Um, but if we're not going to do that and everybody, you know, hates tests these days. So apparently we're not going <laughs> to, my preferred solution of just adding those tests, then maybe we should, 
um, try something else that would allow us to, to not increase testing, but would allow us to improve it a lot by um, really making sure that what we're doing day to day and what students are doing in their building literacy, supposedly, is not a bunch of test prep every day, but it's actually learning about the world and, and becoming more fluent in you know, their vocabulary and their conversation and everything else. Absolutely. I could not agree more. <laughs> that was it right there. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> so we are going to wrap up now, but we, I, I feel like you have given so much advice, but we always ask our, um, our guests to share one piece of advice with our listeners. Um, so this could be towards teachers, district level, whoever you might want to target your advice to. But just Remember, this is the last thing they're going to hear you say. The last so. thing. It better be good. <laughs> One piece of advice. Um, well, we're talking about elementary literacy. So I, my one piece of advice for society at large, in American <laughs> society at large, is that we start doing foreign language in elementary school instead <laughs> of doing it in high school. So I know it's a little bit of a step away from what we're talking about with this research, <laughs> but I think it is absolutely bananas that in many parts of our great country, we do not start learning any foreign language until our language acquisition skills have atrophied to the point of, you know, <laughs> that we're teenagers and we, you know, our brains are much less nimble and flexible than they were when we were four five, six, seven years old and would have picked up all that French or Spanish or Mandarin or whatever so much faster. So um, that's my piece of advice for, for, I don't know how we're going to do it. Um, the, actually, I mean, there's been a lot of great movement on this. we got a bunch of dual language immersion programs popping up in a lot of cities that is are just an amazing way to help um, get better, you know, not only socioeconomic, not only ethnic, but also socioeconomic integration in schools. It's voluntary. That's mutually supporting. It's excellent. I, I really support those. I used to live in DC. DC had several of these schools, a Mandarin immersion school, dual language immersion school, a Spanish one. Um, you know, anyway, we've gotten, we've made some progress on that, but we should do a lot more. And, uh, and anyway, that's my, that's, that's what's grinding my gears. I love it. I knew you were going to have a really cool piece of advice, Adam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, well, it looks like Melissa is uh, frozen. So we're going to keep on. Um, I'm just going to wrap up and say thank you so much. That was awesome advice. Um, and I, I, wanted to, I want to talk more. So it, do another report so that, and, and do more research so we can talk again. <laughs> okay. I don't know when the next like elementary literacy related report I'll be doing will be, but um, yeah, no, keep track of us and, and stay in touch and, um, and be happy to, to get Robert on here sometime at, the, at least. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. All right. Bye Adam. Bye.